Well, let's start in prayer then. Father, we are grateful that you have allowed us to gather today, brought us from different homes, different locations, to be together as your people, to worship, to fellowship together, to study your scripture together, with the goal, Father, that by the shared spirit, by the shared life that we have in Christ, that we would together grow up in all things into him. And we are thankful, Father, that you have not left us alone in this journey of faith, but you have given us one another. And in fact, you have ordained that we would do life together and that our uh, destiny as Christians would be in, in a community, a household of faith, that we would together become a spiritual organism that is the fullness of Christ our Lord. And so, Father, as we again gather in your name to consider this glorious purpose and our privilege in being a part of it, we pray that you will lead out our thinking, that you will guide us in understanding that you will cause us to be edified and encouraged, that you will fill our hearts with all joy and hope in believing as we again consider uh, your great handiwork, uh, the work that finds its destiny in our God being all in all. So bless our study together. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I told you last time that we were going to uh, try to kind of collate the fourth and the fifth sermons of the, the God With Us series and, and uh, pull them together into uh, one bit of instruction. And by way of starting, I guess at this point I can assume with all of us that we recognize the scriptures as telling a grand story. Uh, all of the individual themes and ideas and stories in the scripture really work together to form one grand story. And with any story, we at the beginning, right? And that's the reason for starting in Genesis. Uh, I don't know if you all know the name Meredith Klein or are familiar with him at all, but he wrote a book called Kingdom Prologue. And that was the title that he gave to his commentary on Genesis. And his point in assigning that title was that Genesis is the prologue to God's disclosure uh, of this kingdom and how it is that he would secure it. And behind that is the idea that Genesis is absolutely foundational to us understanding that God has purposed and how it is that he would accomplish that. And so, you know, we tend to come to the creation account at the beginning of Genesis, and we treat that in terms of origins and some sort of explanation for how the world came into existence. And then we move into the flood, and then we move into this, this long narrative of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And, okay, that's all fine and good. But as Klein says, this is laying the foundation for where ultimately God is going in his purposes for the creation. So that really by the time we get to the end of Genesis, we know the story in essence. The foundation has been laid. And the balance of the Old Testament scriptures leading up to the coming of Christ are really just fleshing out 
this uh, purpose of God that has been revealed in the promise of that accomplishment that's bound up in Abraham himself. So as we come to Genesis and approach it, we need to be thinking in that sort of a way that there's a larger point in this than simply God telling us uh, that he's the creator or that this is how he created or whatever as we begin uh, with the opening chapters of Genesis And last time we looked at these themes of shalom and Shabbat as being kind of fundamental qualities of the initial creation as God brought it forth. And we saw that what those ideas speak to is that God's intent for his creation was ordered functioning. Even the initial assessment of the creation, tohu wabohu, formless and void, essentially the idea of uninhabited and uninhabitable. So God remedies that condition by ordering and filling, ordering and filling. And that ordering of things is behind these ideas of shalom and Shabbat. We saw that shalom as the the concept of peace really has to do with wholeness and harmony not just at the individual level, wholeness in terms of integrity at the level of individual people or individual creatures, but the wholeness in terms of the harmoniousness of the creation itself, the way everything is fitted together, ordered, harmonized. So when God is done with his creation, it is shalomic in that it is established according to the order that he intends. And he testifies of that reality by this thing of Shabbat or Sabbath, his rest. And as I said last time, rest is not what we think where, okay, God's been working for six days. He's tired. He's going to take a break or he's going to, you know, go, go sit on the, the couch or something like that. The idea of rest is the cessation of creative work to begin to administer and build and and nurture this order, this shalomic creation that God has put in place. So the ancient Israelites would have seen the creation account as a temple building episode. And I mentioned that before. This is why it's so important, again, to read the scripture in terms of the original author and the original audience. Because literalness, or what the text is really saying, has to do with the author's intent. And we can't read our questions, our agendas, our perspectives, our ways of thinking onto the text. We have to let it tell us what it's getting at. And obviously, these things were communicated to the original audience. The creation account was constructed in a way that would speak the truth God intended to be known to the original recipients. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't speak truth to us, but the truth that God communicated, he didn't communicate to us directly. He communicated it to the original audience, which was an ancient Israelite audience. And as they would have seen this way or this manner of explaining the creation, they would have seen it as a temple building episode. 
the greatest things that kings or men of power or wealth could do was to build a temple to their God. That was the great legacy that men could leave. Sometimes even to themselves as, you know, kings view themselves as a God, whether the pharaohs or whatever. But it was a tribute to deity to build these edifices. And that was their great legacy that they would leave. And in this process of building temples or dwelling places for gods, the last thing that was constructed and placed into that sacred space was the image of the deity. And that image was the tangible physical representation of that deity and the place of encounter between the deity and a man or the created order. That's the way they would have seen the creation account. But as I said also, because function determines form, when we say, okay, why is man the image and likeness of God? What's the point? And we know throughout history, theologians have set, tried to, to understand or think about what, what should we take from this idea of image? Is it intellect? Is it the capacity to love? Uh, is it the capacity of judgment or creative abilities? What is this thing called the image of God? But ultimately, that question has to be answered in terms of functionality because form follows function. The reason a guitar is what it is is because of its function, right? And that's true with everything. So if man is the image of God, what is his function? And we see in the Genesis text that man's identity as image bearer, that form, is unto this role as image son. So when we talk about the relation between Genesis 1 and 2, they're not two entirely separate uh, accounts of different authors of this creation event, but talking about two different aspects of the creation that has man at the center. And in Genesis 1, we see the introduction of man as image bearer to be Lord, right? Lord of the Lords, Lord of the creaturely Lords. That's what Genesis 1 tells us. In Genesis 2, then, we see that man's dominion is a matter of communion. God takes the man and he puts him in the garden where he himself dwells. And so the point is that man is the one who exercises God's dominion over the creation, not in his own right, but as image son. And it was common in the ancient world that kings, certainly once they got to a certain age and their sons got to a certain age, that their sons began to practically implement their reign. Before Nebuchadnezzar became uh, king of Babylon, uh, he was a general and effectively administered his own father's kingdom. So Nebuchadnezzar acted in his father's name, his father's authority. He was the present personal active uh, reign of his father. And that's a very common idea in the ancient world. And that's the idea here as well. Man is image son, son of God, so that he manifests God's rule, God's reign, but in God's name, in God's authority so that he is not self-actuated, he is not self-initiated. And that'll become important as we consider even the fall and the remedy that is attached to this thing of the fall. So man was created as image bearer. There's his form to be image son. 
as uh, uh, Philip Hughes says, man is person from person to be person unto person. Part of this idea of image is that God is a personal being and man is created as a personal being. But not in his own right. He is person out of person in order to be person unto person. And that relational function is the starting point for understanding the significance of man as sharing in God's image and likeness. And you've heard me say in other contexts before, this idea of son of uh, speaks to sameness or essential likeness. So when Adam is created son of God, when man is son of God, it's speaking to some kind of essential sameness. And that sameness is a sharing in, in the same nature and attributes. It doesn't mean that man is divine as God is divine. But Peter can say, even in this restorative work in Christ, that the outcome of it is that we would be partakers of the divine nature, right? Man is image bearer to be image son, and sonship speaks to sameness, sameness in some sense, such that the progenitor is embodied in and manifested in the offspring. And if you look at John Perun discourse in John 14... Just flip to this real quick. You see Jesus, even in identifying himself in relation to the Father, you see that this connection with the Father is more than just, I say the same kind of things that he does. Um, I do the work that he sent me to work. And all of that is true. But it goes beyond that. Thomas says to him, this verse 5, Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How do we know the way? Because he's telling them that he's going away and he's going to prepare a place for them that they can be with him. And he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father, but through me, I am the way. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. But from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the father and it'll be enough for us. And he said, have I been so long with you and you not and you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. The Father abiding in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And if you cannot understand or grasp that, then believe on account of the works themselves. And I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he shall do greater works than these because I go to the Father. The implication being that as I do the Father's work as dwelling in him and him in me, so it will be with you. And so my point is this idea of sonship or being image sons ultimately looks to this reality of I and you, you and me. It is both ontological and relational. It has to do with sharing in the attributes of God as well as being in an essential relationship intimacy with him. And therefore, at the center of this is this idea of a devotedness. When you say, when you see me, you see the Father, it's talking about an essential devotedness, connection of intimacy. 
So here's the point. The communion that God intended to exist between him and his image bearers, the communion of image sons, is the intimacy that exists between a father and son, the objective intimacy of I and you and you and me, as well as the subjectivity of perfect devotion. And that is what informs the human obligation of fruitfulness, filling, and subduing. Remember, the charge to Adam is be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Well, what's the point? Again, man was created to administer and consummate, bring to consummate fullness, God's work of ordering and filling. Man, as image son, is the agency through whom God fully completes this work of ordering and filling, which is his goal, his intent for the created order. So how does that work itself out? Well, as man fills the earth, being the image and likeness of God, in that way, he causes God's presence, love, wisdom, rule to fill the earth. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord filling the earth as the waters cover the seas is the way Isaiah puts it. So God's intent is that the whole world would become sacred space. It would become his dwelling place filled with his presence. How so with his presence in his image children who share in his likeness and manifest his truth, his life, his love, his rule in the world. So the charge to fill the earth and subdue it is the charge to extend sacred space such that the whole earth becomes God's sanctuary. And you see this very much, obviously, as you come to the end of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22. The merging of God's space and the created space. That's the imagery of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. That charge that was given to Adam is reiterated to Noah after the flood. It becomes fundamental to Israel's vocation in the world. When Israel was to be the one through whom God's blessing would go to all the families of the earth, that's this original creative ordering and filling idea. And you see, and even the way it's expressed first to the patriarchs, it's about being fruitful and multiplying, becoming a great nation, filling the earth. So as Israel realized the Abrahamic promise as it fulfilled that promise of dominion and global blessing. It would fulfill the the mandate to Adam, the, the human mandate. And ultimately what we see with Jesus coming into the world is that he fulfills that mandate as true Israel and as new man. But he does it through the covenant family in which he has his fullness. So when we talk about Great Commission in Matthew 28, right? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Jesus, as embodying in himself the, um, the, the covenant people of Israel, he becomes the true Israel. What was Israel's mandate? Take my blessing to all the families of the earth. In order that the human mandate of flooding the earth with the knowledge of me, with my presence, with my love, with my wisdom, with my rule, that that would happen. And so Jesus, as the true Israel, fulfills that mandate of global blessing, global fullness, through 
progeny that he bears, not as physical offspring, but as the offspring of the spirit. The church, the body of Christ, is the community of people in whom he has his fullness, Ephesians 1. The church is the fullness of Christ. And it's in that way that Jesus fills the earth with the knowledge of God, takes this blessing of God to all the families of the earth. And that's what he meant in John 14 when he said, I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, and in that way to see me is to see the Father. Because I go and the Spirit will come... In that way, it will be true of you that as I'm in the Father, the Father's in So you are in me, I am in you, you are in the Father. And now greater works than I have done you will do, in that you will now collectively be able to accomplish this mission on behalf of the earth. So that's ultimately the grand story that we call the story of God's redemptive or, or, you know, his purpose for the world. But already that's introduced to us in the two chapters of Genesis. We already see that that's what God's intent is for the creation. Now, there hadn't been anything about a Messiah. There hasn't been anything about, you know, any kind of restoration. But we see that that's intent for the world. He's building a dwelling place for himself such that he will now fill that dwelling place and he will rule over the works of his hands according to his own nature and character. And he will do that through these image children. That's the great theme of the scripture. Well, that then allows you to begin to think about the fall. And like everything, we have to say, okay, what's the lens through which I consider these things? If we just come to Genesis 3 and we look at this thing of the fall, we're going to be wearing some pair of glasses when we do that, right? We're going to have some set of premises or assumptions that we're going from. Well, what are those? Where do, where do we get them from? What should they be? What are the premises that we bring to bear? Um, all Christians understand this issue of the fall and, and how Jesus restored this, this situation, the fall, but what is it? How do we understand it? And how we understand the fall will tell us how we understand Jesus' restorative work, right? It's how we understand the problem that we understand the nature of the solution. And I would argue that the text wants us to see Genesis 1 and 2 as the lens through which we view the fall. And we don't tend to do that. And, and I mentioned specifically here, uh, reform theology, this isn't about picking on any particular you know, group of, uh, you know, traditions or whatever, but reform theology treats the fall just by way of example as failure under an alleged covenant of works. And some of you may be more familiar with this than others, but essentially reform theology works under the premise of three covenants, covenant of redemption as the eternal agreement within the Godhead, covenant of works, which was the original definition of relationship between God and man, and then the covenant of grace, which from the fall forward is the one covenant, so that everything we call biblical covenants all fit under that rubric or that, that, that general idea of the covenant of grace. So the new covenant in Jesus is only the present administration of that one covenant of grace. But the idea of the covenant of works is that God created man and the relationship was defined by the obligation of perfect obedience. 
symbolized in the commandment, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the righteousness of Adam and the um, integrity of the relationship between God and man was bound up in his faithfulness, his obedience to that commandment. And that obligation served as a probationary test. God was putting Adam to the test. Eat of this tree. Here's a commandment. Obey this commandment. And when you've passed the probation period, probationary period, then you will be eternally sealed in your righteousness. So the idea is that Adam was created capable of falling. If he passed the test, then he would be sealed in a state of perfection where he would not be able to be disobedient. That's the reformed conception of it. So the fall is viewed through that lens. And in that sense, it doesn't really matter what the commandment was, just the obligation to commandment. So in this instance, God said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He, he could have said, uh, you know, sing this hymn in the key of B flat. It didn't really matter. It was just that God is God. He gives a commandment. You have to follow the commandment. And the failure to follow the commandment was this calamity that we call the fall. And so what that means then is that Jesus' own work, his atonement itself, his life as a new Adam and the atoning work that he does and what that atoning work is actually seeking to secure and accomplish is viewed through that lens of a covenant of works. And I'm not trying to make this complicated, but it, it, I'm just trying to make the point that the premises that we bring to bear are going to determine the way all of these things are viewed. And so essentially, uh, in, from that perspective, Jesus' work, his life, and his death are viewed as him perfectly keeping God's commandments where Adam did not. And then his death becomes uh, his satisfaction of that obligation of obedience to commandment. And now in him, we are restored to where we become obedient in that way. Well, I would argue that creation account doesn't define the defined human relationship in terms of a covenant of works. It doesn't mean that there are not covenantal overtones to it because covenants are just determined, formalized, or articulated um, um, definitions of relationship between two entities, right? Whether they're business or marriage or whatever. A covenant defines two parties it defines who they are in relation to one another, what are the obligations of the relationship, and what are the sa sanctions attached to failure under that relationship. Covenants are relational instruments, and therefore there is a covenantal quality to the, the relationship that exists between God and man. But it's not of this nature of the covenant of works in the sense that Reformed theology treats it. The creation points in the direction of this obligation, if we this relational obligation being man's obligation to fulfill his created nature and fun. It's not merely compliance with a directive. 
it's the obligation again of integrity, of authenticity. What made God announce the creation very good? The goodness, the suitedness, the fittedness of the creation was that everything was conforming in its existence and functionality to the truth of what God created it to be. So that the rightness, the goodness of the creation was not in compliance with the directive, but conformity to the truth of its design and function. The obligation of obedience is relational or it's, 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 it's um, authenticity and integrity, being true to what one is, what one is called to be. And that then shows us the nature of the failure. And essentially the failure, then, put most simply, of Adam and Eve, the failure of man, was the failure to conform to human nature as image bearer and human function as image son. At that time and throughout, because of what God created man to be, we can put it this way, man's covenantal obligation was and remains, always has been, a matter of relational fidelity. And you see that even Israel's life under the law, what was the law? It was the covenant by which God formalized, ratified the Abrahamic relationship, the Abrahamic covenantal relationship with the people of Israel as the descendants of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. And Israel's failure under law was not treated ultimately in moral terms, but in relational terms, right? Israel's disobedience was a matter of infidelity, Adultery, harlotry, sons I've reared, but they've strayed from me, right? Israel is a harlot. She bears harlotrous children. Relational fidelity, integrity to the human created nature and function is the issue. So in that sense, the fall then draws on Genesis 1 and 2 in showing us the obligation of obedience is, as I say, conformity to the truth, true nature, true function. And man's nature and his function are critical to the creation's order, orderliness, to the creation's shalomic character. And Conformity to that them, man's nature and function, is the essence of human righteousness. Righteousness is not a moral category per se. It's an ontological and functional category. So the Genesis account of the fall then underscores that human sin, which people rightly say involves deviation from, you know, missing the mark or however it's put. It's a deviation from from a target or from, uh, you know, uh, 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 an outcome or a sort of some sort. It's missing the mark. It's deviation. But from the Genesis account, we see that that deviation is deviation from the truth, not deviation from a commandment, a bare commandment, deviation from the truth of who man is, what he was created for. And the essence of that deviation, the basic expression of it, is the notion 
This is where this deviation occurs in the first instance. It's the notion that wisdom was created to possess as image bearer. The notion that wisdom, which we were designed for, can be obtained independently of God. So you see, and and we'll look at this more next time, but you see when Eve considers this tree, she sees that it's good for making one wise. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, fruit is good for making one wise. So the text wants you to see that the issue is when we say, okay, what's the human, what Genesis is doing is saying, how do we understand this world? How do we understand this created order? Not how did God do it? What are the constituent elements? How long did it take? When was the earth created? But what is the meaning of this world having been created by God? And what is the meaning of man? Who is man? Psalm 8, that you're mindful of him. What is the purpose of man? Well, what went wrong? What went south in this whole project? How do we understand that? Well, it's fundamentally that man believed that the the seduction, the temptation or the problem is the human notion that we can manifest and fully express our human existence and function independently of God, that we can be wise, that we can attain wisdom apart from God. And apart from God, not in the sense of forgetting about him or denying that he exists, but that we can think and reason and judge and praise and live out from our own minds independently of God. And at the heart of the Proverbs is the idea, what, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Not being afraid of God, but in the spiritual sense, fear has to do with a consciousness that is compelling and binding, determinative. If you will, having God, the fear of God is ordering all of life through the lens of who God is in our relationship with him. In Paul's language, it would be having hearts and minds set on things above. It's, it's living with a conscious, compelling God consciousness in which all of life is seen and lived and ordered in that way. Or, as Paul would put it, bearing the fragrance of Christ, right? That's the beginning of wisdom. And Paul says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so God did not, the problem is not human beings becoming wise. God intends that they would be wise. Wisdom is seeing things as they actually are and responding to that truth appropriately according to the truth. Perceiving the lay of the land and responding appropriately to it in all things. God would have us to be wise, but we become wise by thinking his thoughts after him. So this isn't really in the first instance about morality or commandments or or any of that. It has to do with how do human beings do this thing called human existence? How do we live a human life? 
And all people are pursuing wisdom, right? Nobody wants to be a fool. Nobody thinks they're fools. Everybody's seeking to become wise, but according to what they think that is and what that looks like and how it pertains to them. And the issue is that wisdom inheres in God himself and therefore is obtained in essential union with him, such that when I think my thoughts, I'm thinking God's thoughts. When you see me, you see the Father. That's the human life that Jesus lived. And just to finish up then for today, that's the perspective that we'll be considering as we look at the two trees that are the focal point of the garden. Just as a kind of a quick summary for this week, the tree of life signifies man's destiny of immortality. But immortality in a certain sense, not immortality as just existing forever. Uh, the, antith- you know, the opposite of physical death. Not immortality as simply existing forever, but participa- participating in the life of God himself. Paul says that God alone is immortal. Immortality inheres in God. It speaks to the essential, undying, unchanging life that characterizes him. And the tree of life, which God says, eat freely of it. God's intent for human beings is that they would share in the life that inheres in himself. And only in himself. Only in himself. So, you know, Paul talks about the resurrection in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians as ultimately this pledge of God that corruption will put on incorruption and mortality will put on immortality. And you might say, well, wait a minute, aren't we already inherently immortal? Don't we have an immortal soul? And, and I'll challenge you this week to go and investigate that. Nowhere does the scripture say that we were created with an immortal soul. That's an idea that was imported into Christian thought. It predates Christianity. It's a part of, of uh, Greek philosophical thought. The idea of the eternality of the soul. But man was dead for immortality, not not just an immortal soul, but that man as man, body and spirit would fully share in the life of God. And the other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, signifies man of autonomous wisdom, which precludes him sharing in that life. And we see we'll see even in Genesis three that the result of eating of the tree is banishment from the garden. Well, what significance of banishment from the garden in the midst of the garden is the tree of life. So now the restorative work of God is not getting people to where they'll do what they're told. It's recovering man to his uh, bringing man into his ultimate created nature and function as sharing the life and the likeness of God and being his order bringer in his creation. And in that way, the creation attains to its own destiny. That's Romans 8, right? The creation is groaning, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God such that then it can be brought into its own renewal, into its own share in the redemption that's in Christ. Here's my closing statement then. Man's ordained destiny is consummate conformity to his created design. 
when we say, what is this all about? What is this thing of being saved? What is God doing? And, and what, what was he trying to accomplish through the work of Christ? What was his eternal design for the human creature that he is now uh, brought about in Christ and that we are partakers in? What is that destiny? It's consummate conformity to the design for which we were created, which is realized and expressed in a comprehensive intimacy with God. Not just forgiveness, not just God is not mad at us. It's I in you and you in me. It's when you see me, you see the Father. That's what Jesus was promising. That's what he was telling the disciples was the meaning of his death as he explained that to them in the upper room. So this destiny is realized and expressed in comprehensive intimacy with God in whom are life and wisdom. The pursuit of autonomous wisdom, which marks every human being as they came into, as we come into the world. The pursuit of autonomous wisdom is departure from God, so departure from his life. The incarnate son came to attain this human destiny of life and wisdom, and not merely on behalf of mankind, but the entire created order, so that as Paul put it, God at last should become all in all. The harmoniousness of all things taken up in God himself. That's what this is all about. Does it implicate our personal salvation? Yeah, but in a way we don't even tend to think about most often. Well, let me um, close this then in prayer for today. Father, thank you again for this time and consideration. And I pray that you would help each one to think well about these things, that you would make us a meditative, contemplative people, that you would enable us to know and grow in these truths and that you would cause them to become fruitful, not just in our thinking, but in this transformative work by your spirit. Jesus said that the spirit would come to take what belongs to Jesus, what um, what is bound up in his person and work and impart those things to us. Not simply that we would know them, but that we would be transformed by them, conformed to them in truth. I pray, Father, that this would be our goal for ourselves. I pray it would be our goal for our relationship with one another. That in all things we would, as Paul said, labor with all of the effectual working of the Spirit, to see each one presented complete in Christ. That be our longing, may it be uh, our great delight in all things to see this glorious grand purpose for the world, a purpose that David himself contemplated as he uh, looked at the sky and, and, and he asked those questions concerning man and the purpose for him. What is the glory of man? Father, capture our hearts and minds with these things and transform us by them. We thank you for all of the goodness that is over all of your works and especially for bringing us into this restorative life that is in Christ our Lord. Help us to be good stewards of it, to delight in it, to be faithful ministers of it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.